Shalom Aleichem. Good morning, America, Canada, Lahavdali, Rushalai, Eretz Yisrael. We're broadcasting today from Toronto. Had a wonderful Shabbos here, Baruch Hashem. <clears throat> and we're continuing the Shir in Chaim Aran. We dedicate the learning today, Li'ilu Nishmas Rosa Basi Tamar, and Li'ilu Nishmas Aharon Ben Bahia, whose yard site is on the 27th of Cheshvon. And also, Li'ilu Nishmas Shapsi Berebi Sochadoiv, whose yard site is going to be on the 28th of Cheshvon, and Ganesa Bas Rabbi Yosef, whose yard site is also on the 28th of Cheshvon. And we dedicate the learning for a complete refuah shalema for all those that need it. We're continuing in Chaim Aran, depending on what version you're using. It's either paragraph 138 in the book Tzadik or paragraph 12 in the section of conversations related to the chapters of Likuti Aran, giving us the background of what was going on at the time. We spoke about chapter 20 in Likuti Aran earlier, chapter 19. Now Rav Zal writes that after this, Rav Zal went traveling. Shabbos Nachmu was one of the times in the year when he would go out to his students. And on the way, he, he, he gave over the Shir chapter 21 in Likut Imran, which is one of the famous, incredible chapters in Likut Imran, where he speaks about how a person can receive Shefa Elokai, which is Ruach HaKodesh. And he explains that it requires a person purifying the seven openings of the head. The, the Zohar HaKodesh and other Sfarim refer to the seven openings of the head as the candelabra in the Beis HaMikdosh. Just like the candelabra in the Beis HaMikdosh had seven candles, there was a center one, and then two around it, <clears throat> and two around that, and two around that. So too, in the head of a person, in the face, we have the mouth, which is the center candle. We have the two nostrils, the two eyes, and the two ears. This is our menorah. And Rabbi Nezal explains that to the degree that a person purifies their eyes to make sure to look at what I'm supposed to and not to look at what I'm not supposed to, the ears listening to the words of the Chachomim, Shema Divrei Chachomim, the nose, which represents Yiras Hashem, there's a pasuk about Moshiach where it says, Hashem. He will have the aroma, the smell of fear and respect for Hashem and the mouth, watching what we take into our mouth and especially what we give out from our mouth, not to speak any sheker, lashon hara, rechilas, profanity, any of these things, to the degree that a person purifies the seven openings of the head, to that degree the person avails themselves to be able to receive Shefa Elokai. That's the term that he uses. Shefa Elokai means an influx, like a tsunami of light from Hashem. So that ordinarily, a person who wants to learn Torah has to go through a, a, a process, a linear process, first to learn the letters, then the vowels, then words, then sentences, then Hebrew, then Aramaic, Chumash, then Rashi script, then Mishnah. It's an incredible long process. That's the standard way of learning. Rabbi Nezal says there, there's a non-standard way where Hashem can send a person a flow of Shefa Eloikai, this Ruach HaKodesh, where the person receives in, in one minute, 
what another person could take years or a lifetime to learn. We have an example of this with the Arizal. One of the close students of the Arizal, Rabbi Avram Halevi, who was also known as Rabbi Avram Baruchim, one point on a Shabbos, he walked in on the Arizal when the Arizal was resting in the afternoon. The Arizal would get up at midnight and, and daven mates, and he rested on Shabbos afternoon, and this student walked in on him, and he saw him, and he saw the Arizal's lips moving. So he understood he was learning in his sleep. The Arizal mentioned that he had a pass. He was given a special pass in heaven to be able to go to any yeshiva that he wanted to. And he describes the different yeshivas in heaven that he visited, that he saw. He even mentioned a woman's yeshiva, the yeshiva of Basio Basparoi in heaven, in Gan Eden. And, and so the Arizal woke up and he saw this student. So this student asked him, Rebbe, please, could you share with me some of what you were just learning? And the Arizal smiled and said, for me to share with you a little bit of the secrets that I just learned about Balak and Bilam would take me 80 years to give it over to you. Picture what we're talking about. Notice he's napping for 15 minutes or whatever. He's, he, he, his neshama goes up to heaven. He learns something that would take him 80 years to explain, not to us, to one of his students one of the Arizal students. That's, this is an example of this Shefa Eloikai, this Ruach HaKodesh, which a person can receive, Rabbi Nezal says there, by a person preparing themselves, purifying these seven openings of the head. And in this chapter on Likud Imran, Rabbi Nezal also speaks about the seven days Shefa Brachas, that this is one of the reasons why when a couple get married, the foundation for the marriage is these seven days of blessings corresponding to this Shefa Eloikai. And in addition, he mentions seven days of mourning, Shiva Yemei that it's all connected. And he discusses this all in this chapter 21 in Likuti Maran. So Rav Nosanzal says that while Rav Nosanzal was away on this trip, his young daughter, Fega, who was named after his mother, passed away. On his return, when Rav Nosanzal got, got back to Breslov, <clears throat> they didn't tell him about it. Now, keep in mind, we're talking about 200 years ago. There's no cell phones. There's no telephones. There's no faxes. There's no communication. Is is very different from what we're used to today. And they were able to keep this a secret from him because this daughter was not raised at home. She was raised in the city of Ladizhin, where she stayed with a nurse that took care of her. Obviously, there were some kind of complications. <clears throat> as soon as Rabbeinazal got down from his whack, from the carriage that he was being driven in, he went into the house and he found a number of his students from Nemerov who had come to see him. And he immediately began a lengthy discussion with them, sharing with them this chapter in Likut Imran that he had taught on this trip. And, and mentioning this concept of the seven days of mourning. Rav Nosanzal points out that even while Rav Nosanzal was traveling, it was clear, it was evident from the things he was saying that he knew about the passing away of his daughter via Ruach HaKodesh. Nobody told him about it, he knew. And later on, when he came into the house, he questioned the people in the house about his daughter 
and they still did not reveal anything to him. Therefore, he did not observe Shiva at the time, and he didn't actually hear from any human beings until Rosh, after Rosh Hashanah. We're talking about Shabbos Nachmu in Av, in the month of Av, the end of Av. Throughout Elul, there was no talk about this. After Rosh Hashanah, Rabbi Nezal heard, heard about this, and he sat Shiva for an hour, one hour, as is the halacha. When a person doesn't know, doesn't hear about it, until 30 days after it happened, they only sit for one hour. And Rabbi Nezal explained that as long as a person has not heard about this from human lips, they're not required to observe Shiva, to observe any of the laws of mourning, even if he knows about it through other means. Rav writes that he was not with Rav when Rav returned from this trip. He heard about it from friends. And it was only afterwards in Elul when Rav visited him again. And as soon as he came in, he found Rav sitting in a very serious, seemingly sad mood. And he started speaking about life and death. And Rabbi Nezal said that the only difference between life and death is now a person's here. And when the person dies, they're over there. And he pointed to the cemetery, which was visible from, from where they were at the time. In other words, a tzaddik, a tzaddik who leads a life a spiritual life where his whole focus in life is about Olam Haba, when he's living and after he passes away, there isn't that much of a difference. And then Rabbi Nezal began saying, Chaim Nitzchim, eternal life is only with Hashem. And a person who is to nullify themselves completely and become part of Hashem in a sense, that person can also live eternally. And it was then that Rabbi Nezal added a whole paragraph, a long paragraph to that chapter in Likut Imran, Torah Chafalif. There's a major paragraph where he speaks about Chaim Nitzchim, eternal life. The following Rosh Hashanah is when Rabbi Nezal gave the chapter 20 in Likut Imran. Even though we know that the chapters are not in order chronologically necessarily. Rosh Hashanah that year came out on Thursday and Friday. And the following day, Shabbos, Shabbos Shuva, Rav Nosanzal says we weren't sure whether Rav Nosanzal would come out to speak, to deliver a shir on Shabbos or not, because Shabbos Shuva was not necessarily one of the official times when he would speak. So we were waiting there at Shabbos Shudis, and we were standing, expecting near the room where he, where Rav Nosanzal was, to see if he's going to come out and talk. And Rabbi Nezal says, suddenly the door opened, and Rabbi Nezal came out of the room very quickly. And it was like a shock. And then Rabbi Nezal called for his oldest daughter, Adel, to come in. He began talking to her about the passing away of his daughter, his younger daughter, Fega. And at first, she wasn't admitting to it at all. But Rabbi Nezal said to her, don't you know that I know? I know. And then she was forced to tell him. And for this reason, he did not come out to join his students for Shalashudis, but rather he observed that one hour of Shiva that a person is supposed to. Afterwards, he came out into the, the large room where his students were. 
and he spoke to his students and he asked one of his students, did you cry on Rosh Hashanah? We know that the Arizal mentions something very, very special, that a, a Jew who has a heart is supposed to cry at least at some point in time during the Aseris Yemei Tshuva, from the beginning of Rosh Hashanah till Yom Kippur. And the Arizal says that if it comes upon a person suddenly, if a person is in shul on Rosh Hashanah or on Yom Kippur, and suddenly they feel a need to cry, they should know that that implies that they are being judged at that moment in Shamayim. And that's why they're experiencing this, and they should take advantage of it. Open the faucet, cry, cry to Hashem for tshuva to come close to Hashem. But Rabbi Nezal asked this student, did you cry on Rosh Hashanah? And he went on to explain that real crying comes from a place of joy, not from a place of depression, sadness. It could come from a broken heart. A person feels small, a person feels lacking, but not depression, chas v'shalem. And Rabbi Nezal went on to say that the Pasuk, there's a Pasuk, b'shimcha yegivun kol hayoyim. We rejoice with you, with your name, Hashem, all day. The first letters of Beshimcha Yegilun Kol Hayoyim spell the word Bechia, crying. And Rabbi Nezal said, healthy crying, pure crying, is coming from a place of joy, Simcha. Rabbi Nezal went on to say that he felt a heora, he felt an inspiration to want to teach Torah, that Shabbos, Shabbos Shuvah, but because of the fact that that was when he was informed from human people that his daughter had passed away, obviously he couldn't do it at the time. <clears throat> and he mentioned something very, very interesting. He mentioned, again, why at that point in time specifically was he told? The answer is he said that his daughter had come to him. His daughter, Fagel, had passed away, came to him complaining that in the place where she was staying, she was obviously ill, and they brought in healers to try to cure her. And one of these healers was a non-Jew who used, who used uh, charms, these charms and spells to try to heal her. And even though, Rabbi Nezal said, even though the knowledge of sorcery isn't really generally found today, this Goy was an actual sorcerer. He knew these things, and this caused a blemish on her neshama, on his daughter's neshama. And that's why she came to Rabbi Nezal complaining bitterly until he was forced to ask about her and to receive the information that she's not living anymore so that he could do what he had to do to rectify her neshama. And Rabbi Nezal said as a result of this, he was distracted from the Torah that he wanted to reveal at that time <clears throat> and was not able to give it over. Rav Nassau says, however, Hashem with his infinite kindness saw to it that we did not lose that Torah. The following Monday is when Rabbi Nassau gave one of the most incredible shiurim in the entire Likutei Maran, chapter 22, which is called Chaysam B'toy Chaysam, a seal within a seal. And it's a long chapter which has incredible, incredible revelations in it. And Rabbi Nusenzal writes that it came out sort of unexpectedly. Rabbi Nusenzal was sitting with us 
and he asked somebody to bring him olive oil and a wick and to prepare a lamp for him to light. He lit the lamp and Rav Nassar writes that this was something that he did at, at different times as a form of hamtokas hadinim. Rav Nassar mentions this in Sefer Hamidois in the Aleph Beis book, that lighting a candle of olive oil is one of the things that helps sweeten harsh decrees, to eliminate harsh decrees. So Rabbeinazal was in the custom of doing this. It's interesting to note that in recent years, when I say recent years, I'd say in the past 30, 40 years, it's become popular at Kivrei Tzadikim. You see this in Miron, Kevarachel, Morasamach Pela. You see it by some of the Hasidish Rebbe's, by the Belzer at many places that they've prepared a large, large cup, a large receptacle, sometimes that could burn for a week, and in some places that can burn for a month in Kevrachel, they fill it with olive oil specifically, and they light it. They light it, Le'ilu Nishmas, that tzaddik that's there. And, and this is considered one of the things that sweetens harsh decrees, that brings about hamtoka sadinim. We know that a candle is associated with an ashama. Olive oil, olives are one of the seven special species that Eretz Yisroel is praised about. In the Beis Hamikdash, the Menorah in the Beis Hamikdash was lit with pure, pure of olive oil. So this has a special significance. It's interesting that before Rabbein Azal passed away, he asked that at his kever, there should be a ner tomid of olive oil, of Shem and Zayis burning at his kever. And this is something that was done immediately when he passed away. During communist times, there was no kever. The, 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 the building, the small building of the kever had been blown up in World War II and there was no actual visible sign that this was a kever of a tzaddik. It was simply a slab of cement. And at that time, there was no option of anybody lighting an air tomid there. My Rebbe, Rav Michal Dorfman, when he came to the United States in 1979 on a mission to try to save the kever of Rabbeinazal when the Russians decided to put up a whole apartment building complex in that vicinity, while he was in New York, he visited some of the different Breslov communities. And he came to one of them, I believe it was in Williamsburg, by the home of Rabbi Wasilski there at the time. And he spoke to him and he saw a Ner Tomid. He saw a cup with olive oil burning. And he asked him, what is that? So he told him that I can't, we can't light an Ner Tomid by Rabbi Nachman's kever. So I light it in my house. I light it, I say, I'm lighting this candle, Lichvoid Nishmas Rabbi Nachman ben Fega. Remichel heard this and he said, that sounds special. That's very special. Maybe I'm going to do that when I go home. When he went back to Israel, he's, he did this also, and it caught on. And today in most of the Breslov homes, those that are aware of it, you'll see that there's a Ner Tomid of olive oil specifically burning. Some people light it once a week, you know, as they light it with a long wick, some people use floater wicks, they light every day, it doesn't matter. But again, they light it and they have in mind, I'm lighting this, Lichvoid Nishmas Rabbi Nachman ben Fega. And it's a schus, it's a, it's a schus for the tzaddik, and it's a connection, it's another form of a connection. So here, Rabbi Nassau asked him to prepare this. He lit the lamp himself, as, and, and after lighting it, it was near his table, Rabbein Azal spoke to us 
with tremendous euro, with tremendous awe. And he asked somebody to bring him a copy of the slichas that we recite during Aseres Yemei Tshuva. And they brought a sitter to him and opened it to the part of the slichas of Yom Kippur. And Rav Nusant says, we were all standing there at the time. And he began speaking about Ganeden and Gehenim. How both of them are in this world. In this world, there's Ganeden and Gehenim. And this led from one subject to the next. And he completed that whole shia that he wanted to give. Rav Nosanzal says it took about four hours. He spoke for about four hours. Today, if a rabbi speaks more than 30 minutes, <clears throat> he's got to prepare for his next job. <laughs> but in those days, there were people who had a capacity to be able to listen. When Rabbi Nosanzal spoke on Rosh Hashanah, usually it was several hours. And the shia was given in the evening. It was given between the first day and the second day in the evening. And Rabbein Zal would speak, and these shurim are documented. We have it on Likut Imran. And Rabbein Zal says to describe what took place, what we, what we saw, what we felt, it's, it's indescribable. We were so excited about this. And later on, Rabbein Zal writes, on the Shabbos after Sukkot, Rabbein Zal revealed to us that to receive that Torah, he had to pay a thousand gold coins. Rabbi Nezal said that he was in heaven. He was in heaven. And there was like what he described like an auditorium where Torah was being taught. And he went to the entrance. He wanted to go in. And there was a Shomer HaPesach. There was a guard that wouldn't let him in. And he realized he had to be willing to pay to get in. Rabbi Nezal said that he had an expense account. He had a budget. And, and he understood that it would cost a thousand adumim. That's the term that he used to get in. And Rabbi Nezal said, I love Torah, so I did it. I paid. I paid, and I went inside, and this is some of what I heard when I was there. Imagine what we have in Likutim, what, what's being revealed there. This chapter in Likutim Ran itself is something awesome. He speaks about the two seals. He speaks about the Chosim Hayodin and the Chosim Haraglin, the seal of the hands and the seal of the feet. Speaking about Emuna, he speaks about the shofar in that Torah. He speaks, he explains the whole concept of an echo, how an echo works. The Gemara Rosh Hashanah discusses a scenario where a person is in a ditch. A person is in a deep pit and someone else is outside the pit. And either one of them blows the shofar. Let's say the one in the pit is blowing the shofar. The one outside of the pit possibly is not hearing the sound of the shofar. He's hearing an echo. Is he, I'd say, does he get credit for hearing the sound of the shofar or not? And Rabbi Nezal explains in that Torah what sound is, what an echo is, incredible things. Rabbi Nezal writes in the introduction to Likut Emaran that there are things in this Sefer that you're not going to find in any other Sefer. Besides discussing just about every single topic in Yiddishkeit, Rabbi Nezal discusses things that are not discussed in other places. He discusses gravity. There's a chapter on Likut Emaran that explains the whole concept of gravity, how it works, and how it relates to Yiddishkeit, how it relates to coming close to its tzaddik. I remember when I was about 17 years old, when I met my Rebbe, Rav Rosenfeld, and he had invited me once to his home on Shabbos. And I remember it was feeling like I was invited to the Arizal, literally. And, and I was the only one, the only guest there at that time on Shabbos. 
And even his children, I believe, were away at the time. So there were three people at the meal, him, my, his Rebbitson, and myself. And we had the, the meal Friday night, and he started saying Advar Torah, and he starts speaking about gravity. And I'm looking and I'm thinking, is this a dream? You know, am I really here? Maybe I'm dreaming. Maybe I never came for Shabbos. Maybe I'm at home in my bed and this is all a dream. I couldn't believe it. It was so, so strange. And then he led from the discussion of gravity into a discussion, an incredible discussion about coming close to the tzaddik, how there's a gravitational pull. There's a natural gravitational pull because a tzaddik has humility. He's like the ground. He's like the earth. And just like the earth has a gravitational pull to it, so to the tzaddik, there's a natural gravitational pull to be pulled unless there's an actual force pushing away. An incredible explanation about the mishkan. The word mishkan, moshcheni achara, it draws people to it. So here in this chapter, chapter 22, is one of those chapters that has amazing things in it. And Rav Nosanzal writes, Exactly. Any questions, please? Rav Nassim? Rabbein Nizel, it seems like there's all these techniques for cleaning the seven apertures in, in Breslov, uh, Hispotidus, etc. But could you uh, describe some of them? And also, with the nose, that just means cultivating your, uh, your Shemayim. Thank you. Regarding the seven openings of the head, it's, it's a combination of prayer. It's, it's that, that same combination that we mentioned many times. Praying, learning Torah, and coming close to tzaddikim. Because we know that the number seven has incredible significance in all three areas there. Number one, prayer. There's a Pesach in Tehillim, Sheva Bayoim Hilal Ticho Al Mishpatei Tzidkecho. In chapter 119 in Tehillim, King David, King David says, Hashem, I praise you seven days, seven times a day regarding your, your wonderful laws. And the Gemara says this refers to the seven blessings that surround the Kriyashma. In the morning, there are two, two blessings in front and one blessing afterwards. In the evening, there's two in front, two in back. The Gemara says this is what it refers to. But we see the number seven associated with tefillah. Regarding the Torah, most people are familiar with the concept of five books of the Torah. But it's, the Gemara says that there are the seven pillars of the Torah. Hashem carved out, there are seven pillars of the Torah, meaning that there's the book Bereshis, Shemos, Vayikra, and in Bamidbar, it's divided into three books. There's section one. Then there's that small, those two or three sentences that have the upside down nuns beginning and ending those. That's considered a separate entity. So that Bamidbar, and then there's the section after that. So Bamidbar is three books. And then you have Dvarim, which is number seven. So Torah is referred to by the number seven. And then when we speak about and we speak about tzaddikim, we speak about the seven shepherds of Klal Yisrael. Avram Yitzhak Yaakov, Moshe and Yosef David. So if a person wants to purify these seven openings of the head, the way that we do it 
is through prayer, through the study of Torah, and through coming close to tzaddikim. And especially that chapter in Likut Imran, like many of them, has a corresponding chapter in Likutei Tfilois, the book that Rav Nosanzal wrote, where he wrote a prayer for each one of the chapters in Likutei Imran. And there, a person <coughs> can see exactly how to pray to Hashem to be zochet, to purify these seven openings, purify and perfect these seven openings. Thank you, and, Rabbi Nathan. Yes, hi, Rabbi. What are the things that would push against the gravitational force to come close to the Sadiq? The answer is that that's in chapter 70 in Likut Imran. And Rabbi Nachman says that the most powerful things are those human beings who oppose the Tzaddik, who speak against Tzaddikim Chas Vashon. Whether it's those people who say, you don't need a Tzaddik, that's these other religions where they talk about an intermediary, that kind of thing. Who needs what? Who needs a tzaddik? I can I can pray myself. I can learn myself. That's that's one of the forces that that works. That pull. It's called koyach hamachriach. Rabbi Nazar refers to it over there in Likut Imran. You know the, these forces that oppose, that try to pull away or push people away from coming close to tzaddikim. And then there could be the the the, the a person's own faults, flaws. Every sin a person commits, has shown, creates a barrier between us and Hashem and between us and the tzaddikim. The Baal Shem Tov says that the, the, in Tehillim it says, Zer Hashar Lashem. This is the entranceway to Hashem. What is the entranceway to Hashem? Tzaddikim. That's the entranceway to Hashem. Through them, Yovoyovoy, through them we can come close to Hashem. Is the um, sorry? Just one more question: Is the entrance way to the the Sadiqim or or is it also the students of the Sadiqim who would be like our elders, like for you, for instance? The answer is Rabbi, Rabbi Nachman writes that, and Rabbi Nosanzal writes that in several in many places in Likutei Alochas. In chapter eight in Likutei Maran, Rabbi Nosanzal speaks about about dealing with people that are far from Hashem, Rishon. And he writes that a tzaddik, a regular tzaddik, is in danger if he tries to engage a Russia, whether it's to bring him close to Hashem or to, in, in whatever ways he's in danger, because a Russia, sometimes if he's powerful enough, can swallow a tzaddik. There's an actual pasuk in the Torah which says, Tacharish kevala Russia tzaddik mimenu, that, that, be silent and tremble when a the Russia swallows up one who is more righteous than him. And the Gemara says there, Sadik Mimeno Bolea, Sadik Gomor Eno Bolea. A Russia can sometimes have the ability to defeat one who is more righteous than him. But a complete Sadik, he cannot swallow, he cannot defeat. And Rabbi Nachman writes there that therefore. Vit Sadik, Vit Sadik Gomor, and those who are attached to him, they can engage the Russia, they can engage Russia and try to bring him close or try to destroy him, depending on what's required, what's needed at the time. That's one of the places where he uses this concept of the Sadik and those attached to him. Rav Nosanzal, in several places on Likut Alachis and several places on Likut Tfilais, and in his letters, in Alam, the truth of the letters that he writes, he definitely makes it perfectly clear 
that the tzaddik and those people who are zechah to come close to him, those are the people who have an opportunity and an obligation to try to help Klal Yisrael, you know, to try to help bring people close to Hashem. Sorry, I'm just gonna ask. I'm just gonna ask one more question. If you go, is is there more than one Sadiq Gomer? Because we know that there's Rebbe Nachman. There's also the Rebbe Lubavitch. Yes, I believe there could be, but again, this term Sadiq Gomer, Rebbe Nachman speaks about it in that chapter on the Kutaran chapter eight. He gives us an inkling as to what's involved in that. He speaks about the four basic elements of creation from which everything in this world is created from, which are air, fire, water, and dust, dirt. And, and Rabbi Nachman explains, as is found in many others for him, that each and every one of us has these four elements inside of us, and there's a good side to it and a bad side to it. There's a healthy fire. There's a healthy fire. When a person's heart is on fire for Hashem, when a person is praying or learning with hislavos, with emotion, with enthusiasm, that's a healthy fire. And then there's the fire of the Yitzhahara. There's a healthy water. Water represents desires. There's a person who desires good things. They desire Torah, Tefillah. They desire a healthy marriage. They desire... And then there's there's Taivois Royce. There's sinful desires. In each one of these four elements, there's a good side to a, and a bad side. A Tzadik Gomorrah has to be one who has purified himself to such an extent that he's rid himself completely of any iota of negativity from these four elements, from all of these four elements, not just rid himself of it completely, but he's eliminated even the potential for doing a sin. Rabbi Nachman explains this over there in that chapter on the Kutimran. That tzaddik is permitted to engage a Russia and not, doesn't have to be afraid that the Russia is going to be able to defeat him. We know, for example, when we speak about the holiday of Purim, Hamon HaRasha, Hamon is a descendant of Amolek, and the Torah defines Amolek as Rashis Goyim. He's the top, the peak, the most powerful one of all 70 nations. Hamon came from Amolek, a descendant of Amolek. Hamon is partnering with Achashverosh, who had all of his own evil, the, the Malchus of the Sitrach are ruling over 127 countries. That's how powerful Achashverosh is at the time. And the Jewish nation is at a, an incredible low, having been, having been driven out of Eretz Yisrael for 70 years. We're at the end of a 70-year exile, estrangement from Hashem. And at that point, Haman decides to, to attack he, he gets angry at Mordechai, and I'm not going to kill him. I'm going to kill his whole nation. I'm going to wipe out his whole nation completely. And it took, the Arizal explains, it took a tzaddik of the caliber of Mordechai. The word Mordechai is bigematria rav chesed. One of the 13 attributes of kindness of Hashem is rav chesed. There's chesed, there's kindness, and there's rav chesed. Rav Chesed is like a completely different league of, of, of holiness and, and reaching up in, in the 13 attributes of Hashem, which is like coming from the crown of Hashem, the highest place. It took a tzaddik of that caliber to, to take on Haman, to say, I'm not bowing down to him. We see the, the Arizal explains, and it's, it's all the Sifre Kabbalah, Haman made a tree of 50 cubits. 
what, what, what does that have to do with, why is that in the Torah? It means that Haman reached, it says that when the Jews were in Egypt, they fell down to minus 49. We dropped down to minus 49 in Tumah, in impurity. If Chas V'Shalom, we had hit 50, minus 50 is a point of no return, Chas V'Shalom. And Moshe Rabbeinu came and saved us just at the right time. Haman put up a scaffold of 50 Amos because he was trying to do that. He was trying to tap into minus 50 and to eliminate the Jewish people once and for all, finally. And it took a tzaddik gomor of the caliber of Mordechai, combining with Esther Hamalka and combining with all of those children at the time who were fasting and praying for their success to be able to defeat Haman. Not just defeat Haman, but turn things around completely, completely, where, where the non-Jews were converting. Many non-Jews were converting at the time to join Klal Yisrael. So that, that this term Tzadik Gomor is, is something very, we're talking about an incredible high level. Thank you. Anyone else, please? Reb Yes. Is, can, is, is the story of Moshe Rabbeinu with the Chatan Damim, with Zipporah before the birth, it's the idea of being, the Tzadik being swallowed, right? That's our understanding. That it says that a snake that opened its mouth and was trying to swallow, swallow him, you know, all kinds of different ways. There are several places where we see that terminology used in the final shear that Rabbein Azal gave in his life on Rosh Hashanah, Tiku Toichacha, chapter 8 in the second half of Likutiman, he quotes a Pasuk, a famous Pasuk, famous that it's mentioned in the Zohar Kodesh, in the Arizal, the Sifrei Kabbalah, Chel Bola, Vayikienu, referring to the fact that the Satan, the Yitzhahara, the Sitrachra, swallows up Chel. Chel means power, tremendous power, that whenever we commit sins or whenever we do mitzvahs and we don't do it the right way, sometimes the Yitzhahara is able to swallow that up and use that to empower himself. And th these are the things that make, and the Yitzhara swallows up souls, chas v'shom, souls that go off the path. People that choose chas v'shom to convert out of Judaism, chas v'shom, or people that leave the fold in all kinds of different levels, and they become part of, they get swallowed up by the sitrachra. And Rabbi Nezal shows there how the tzaddikim have, a, the, again, a tzaddik gomor, a tzaddik who is a balk, he refers to him there as a balkoyach, he has to be very, very powerful and has to know the secrets of tefillah and has to know how to prepare a certain type of tefillah that's called a tefillah bebechinas din. Standard tefillah is called rachamim, rachamim, kindness. There's another type of tefillah that has to be used at certain times, which the great can know, where because this tefillah is in the form of din, Meet Din, and Din is the left side. Din is the Sitrachra. The Sultan sees that and he says, that's my breakfast. That's my lunch. That's for me. And he tries to swallow that, that fila. And Rabbein Azal brings proof from Psukim. The Pasuk says, This powerful thing gets stuck in his throat. And when something gets stuck in somebody's throat, sometimes the only way of dislodging it is they have to vomit. They have to throw up. And this forces the satan this, to have to throw up, to have to return, give back 
all of this stuff that he swallowed over a period of years or generations, which could be souls or could be mitzvahs, things that, that, that he was able and forced to give it back to return all of that. Okay, we continue. Paragraph 14 or 140, depending on the sefer that you're using. Rav Nosanzal writes that when Rav was giving over the sheer chapter 20 in Likut Imran, which is entitled Tes Tikunim, we mentioned it earlier a little bit. Now he's going to mention something else related to it, <coughs> which is based on a piece in the Zohar Kodesh where it speaks about the nine tikunim of the beard. The Zohar Kodesh speaks about the 13 tikunim of the beard and the nine tikunim, special spiritual things that are associated with the beard. The beard generally represents old age, mellowing. <clears throat> so Rav Nosanzal says we were standing around Rav at the time, and he tore out the pages from his notebook to give us to be able to copy it over. And Rav Nosanzal writes that in the, be the beginning of the, of the page, was written on a page, it started from the middle of the page, there were other things written above it, which Rabbein Azal did not want to give over, whatever reason, he did not want to share that. So that first, the beginning of that chapter, Rav Nosanzal says, I couldn't see that page, he dictated to me, the bottom here for that page, for me to write over, <clears throat> and, and as he was reading, Rav Nosanzal says, Rabbein Azal became super excited, his face was flushed, and he stopped for a moment. And Rav Nosanzal writes that Rav Nosanzal, when he gave over the shear originally on Rosh Hashanah, he was pulling from his beard like with an incredible intensity. This is one of the, again, one of the deep chapters of Likut Imran, where he reveals the, the whole secret of why Miriam Hanavia passed away when she did in the Midbar, and the chain reaction that was caused by Miriam passing away with the Jews complaining that we need water, we don't have any water, and Moshe Rabbeinu ends up striking the rock. That chapter in Likud goes through a whole section in Chumash explaining the secrets behind what was going on there, why it was happening, and why that resulted in Moshe Rabbeinu and Aaron Akon not being able to enter in Teretz Yisrael. And Rav Nosanzal says, for us, this was just amazing to watch. Afterwards, Rabbein Azal told us that it was the evening of his mother's yard site, his mother Fega, whose yard site is on the 19th of Adar, right after Purim. And Rabbein Azal said he had forgotten his mother's yard site and he hadn't lit a candle or said Kaddish. And that year was a leap year, which means that the yard site is observed in both Adars, in both Adars, as is one of the opinions in Shulchan Aruch. So during the writing, when Rabbein was writing that, when we were writing over that lesson, his mother came to him and reminded him that it's her yard site. He immediately called together a minion and learned some Mishnayis and said Kaddish and lit a candle for her. That morning also, he organized a minion in his room and he led the prayers. Rabbein was the chazan straight through, through the end of Shachris saying the Kaddish himself with all, all the Kaddishim. Then he learned Mishnayis and said the Kaddish the Rabbonon that said after Mishnayis. Rabbi Nazar said afterwards, that was the first time in his life that he was a Chazan, that he led the prayers. He had never done it. 
And there were also other special things, Rav Nosanzal says, that took place on that occasion. Now, here's an amazing, on one hand, it's a consolation to us. We forget our names, we forget our talis and tefillin, we forget, we forget our pants. I remember my Rebbe, Rebbe Michal Dorf, would go to the mikvah on Erev Shabbos, near his house in Eretz Yisrael, and he'd come out sometimes with a smile, and he says, I don't understand. I see a pair of pants hanging there by itself in the mikvah. How did he go home? <laughs> but we're capable of doing it. We're capable of forgetting things. Not to compare in any way we see, but by the great tzaddikim sometimes. Who knows what's going on at the time that it's possible for them to forget something as important as this, his mother's yard sign. There's a story with the Baal Shem Tov that I heard from my Rebbe, Rav Rosenfeld, that the Baal Shem Tov one time was with his students. They had Davin Mincha ready, and they were waiting to Davin Marev. And suddenly he felt very tired. He put his head down, and his mother came to him in a dream. And his mother said to him, I could forgo your Kaddish. I could forgo your Mishnayis. I could forgo your davening for the Ahmed. But even Tikkun, people shouldn't make any brachas, you know, for my, my neshama. There's a custom, especially among Hasidim, that on a yard site, person brings cake and liquor or to shul for people to make brachas, li'iwi nishmas, for the benefit, for the sake of the neshama of the person who departed. So the Baal Shem Tev immediately woke up. He told one of his students, please run quickly, bring some mezainas, bring some cake, so we can make brachas in memory of my mother. And I remember hearing from my Rebbe, Rav Rosenfeld, that this is, there are some people that say, minhagim, chasidash minhagim, these things are not jokes. A bracha, a bracha, a person making a bracha on food can make an incredible difference in, 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 the, in the status of an ishama. There's a famous story in the Zohar Kodesh that appears in, in several places with different people. In one place, it's mentioned about Rabbi Akiva. In another place, it's mentioned about Rabbi Rechumoi, that they were once traveling, they were going through a forest, and he saw a man carrying a heavy, heavy load of wood and walking bent over and rushing, rushing. So he ran to help him. He saw the person who ran to help him, and he started talking to me. He said, don't talk to me. Don't disturb me. I, I'm busy. And he's running it. Let me help you. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. And, and he realized that this is not a regular man. This, something's going on here. So he said, please, I'm begging you. Tell me, what, what, is, what are you doing? What are you doing with, all, with this wood? And he told him that he was a tax collector when he was living. And he, he, he tormented poor people. Poor people, poor Jews who couldn't pay with them. He tormented them. He tortured them. You know, he didn't pay properly. And when he passed away in heaven, his punishment is that every day he has to gather together wood and they use some of that wood to burn him in Gehenim. And there are malachim who are chasing him. And if he stops for a moment, it's worse. It's even worse. So please don't talk. And, and the rabbi is running after him, talking to him, telling him, tell, and he says to him, I'm begging you, is there anything, can anybody help you? Is there anything that can be done to help you? He said, no, no. yes, if, if I had a son, if I had a child, that could help me. Did you have a child? He said, I don't know. I passed, I died. My wife was pregnant. I, I have no idea what happened. Where's your wife from? Where, what city? Tell me the city. Tell, 
oh, okay. He gets the information and he decides to re to find, go find that city, go find if she gave birth, did she have a child? Sure enough, yes. And when he mentions to the people in the city, the child, when he mentions the name of the person, they say, may his name be obliterated. Everybody knows he was a big Russia, this person that died. And when he mentions the son, he says also, he's just like his father, said following the footsteps of his father. He hears it, he ignores it. He finds this person's son and he engages him and he makes a, a, a bond with him and he starts teaching him. He starts teaching him Aleph Bays. He starts teaching him words slowly, slowly. And at one point in time, this, this young man becomes capable enough to get an Aliyah to get called up to the Torah. And he gets called up to the Torah and he says the, the brachas on the Torah. That night, this tzaddik, Rebekah, had a dream. And in the dream, this man comes to him who he saw in the forest that time. And he's dressed in white, beautiful, pure white robes. And his face is glowing. And he says to the rabbi, he says, let me tell you exactly what happened to me since I saw you last. When you started teaching my son Aleph Bays, when he started learning the Aleph Bays, right away, immediately, the fires were cooled down a little bit. And when he started being able to recite a bracha, that kind of thing, they stopped the Gehenim. The Gehenim was stopped for me. And when he got called up to the Torah, when he was able to recite the bracha in the Torah, they took me and placed me into Gan Eden. Now I've already entered into Gan Eden. This is what it means when a person has a child and the child is able to do a mitzvah, to do a mitzvah, to recite Torah. This is the kind of elevation. This, this is the transformation that could happen to the soul of the person who passed away. So when we celebrate a yard site, when we use sometimes a person has a sitter or a chumash of a person that passed away, and they're using that, they're using that sitter, person has no idea, they're making brachas, and I could, use a, I could use a different sitter, I could use a different book, but I'm using his sitter, I'm using his safer, and the person doesn't know that, that that's registering in that person's record, that they left behind, number one, in addition, in addition to the words of Torah that they shared with their child or with their friend, in addition to that, where every mitzvah that that child or that student does is registered to the parent or the grandparent or the rabbi. But if I'm using his actual sitter, if I'm using his clothing or something, and I'm going to show with that, I'm doing a mitzvah, you could imagine the level of elevation. We see that these tzaddikim, the Baal Shem Toiv, Rabbi Nachman, had to have a bracha, they had to say a bracha, they had to, say, they had to do something to elevate the neshama of an ifter. person would say, Rabbi Nachman's mother, she was a Balas Ruach HaKodesh. Her brothers, her brothers were the grandsons of the Baal Shem Tov. Everyone knew that she had Ruach HaKodesh. She needs, her soul needs elevation. The answer is yes. There's higher and higher and higher. And Sadiqim, even when they go to Gan Eden, they want to go higher. They want to go higher. And we who are still in this world are in a position to be able to help them. While a parent is living, there's a famous quote that one parent can take care of nine kids and sometimes nine children can't take care of one parent when, when, when the reverse is. But when a parent passes away and they can't do mitzvahs anymore on their own and a child or a student does mitzvahs, that's an incredible, incredible merit to the neshama of the one who passed away.
Any questions? So, Reb Nelson, we can recite Tehillim for any tzaddikim, or or and and or dedicate any mitzvah or to, to any tzaddikim, anyone who's passed, and it's and it's a merit for them. It doesn't have to be in the yard. Rabbi Nachman spoke about this correct? before he. Rabbi Nachman spoke about this before he passed away. How much he would appreciate and how much he would enjoy people coming to his kever and reciting Tehillim there or studying Torah there. He spoke about this, that this would be an incredible pleasure to his neshama. And Rabbi Nelson writes, when he said it, like we saw, he was talking about something ethereal, that this would be an incredible, incredible gift for the tzaddik. But even if we don't know the, uh, even if we're not physically there, we could do it. If we're not physically at his kever, we could do it. It'll have an effect. Definitely. Most definitely. We mentioned the name. We mentioned the name. On a yard site, we light a candle in memory. These are all, each one of these things is a major, major, a major step. Recently, they've come out with Sparim that list the yard sites of Tzadikim, all kinds of people. Somebody here, I believe in Toronto, showed me a safer that had come out recently, mentioning all kinds of yard sites, so that if a person wants to look up, a person wants to see today, which yard sites? Oh, this rabbi, I learned his safer. I learned his safer. I can light a candle in his memory. I can have in mind that all the brachas, all the mitzvahs that I'm going to say today should be dedicated a benefit to this tzaddik's neshama, you know, that kind of thing or any neshama, a parent, a friend, you know, anyone who could benefit from it. Thank you. Wishing, wishing everybody a wonderful week. We have Rosh Chodesh this week. We have two days of Rosh Chodesh, Thursday and Friday, and we have an era of Rosh Chodesh, Yom Kippur Katan. This month, there's Yom Kippur Katan. These are three very, every day is powerful. These are extra powerful days. to fill the week with mitzvahs and and toivim. And and the tzaddikim should do what 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 we need them to do on our behalf, to to give us our tikkun. You know, on one hand we're talking about doing for them. What we're doing for them is 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 micro compared to what they're doing for us and what they can do for us. They should do what what we need them to do to bring about to put an end to all the suffering and all the difficulties and bring about the gula shleima b'mehera b'amenu amen v'amen. Amen. Thank you, Rabbi. Amen. I just have one more question, if you don't mind. The the uh, who who is the the wicked one? Is it the Sitra Akra, the Russia that swallows up the the rabbi? Is it the Sitra Akra, or is it the actual tap the 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 Torah scholar? It's the Russia. It's the Russia. The Russia. The Sitra Akra. It has the ability when when we sometimes can feed them chasvishon. When we commit sins, we're feeding them. When we do mitzvahs in an improper type of way, chas v'shom, sometimes we could be feeding them. It doesn't mean if a person makes a mistake, they didn't know something or whatever, but a person has to know, you know, that there's a, a lot written about this, of things that, that give them, where they draw, the sultan is able to draw on certain things. Chas v'shom, <clears throat> when there's machlokis, when there's machlokis in a house, when there's a lack of, when there's anger, certain things like that. That feed that feed the other side. Arrogance. Those are some of the things. And then, does he have to? Does he have to, like, uh, re- return back to the to the rabbi, or like, what happens? We mentioned one of the 
that Sadiqim sometimes shoot a missile. This tefillah, this special kind of tefillah in the form of din, which is able to retrieve a lot of that, a lot of that kedusha that was swallowed up by the sitra achra. Another form of this is when a convert comes and joins Klal Yisrael. Rabbi Nachman says that very often that convert is a package of goodness that the Sitrachra had swallowed up, could be over a period of years and everything. And that goodness is stuck in the domain of the Sitrachra. And at one point, there's a whole process in chapter 17 in Likut Imran, where Avenazal explains where how Tzadikim are able to send a message across enemy line into the place of the non-Jews. And that message finds itself in their books, in their theology books. And Anandju reads those books and he sees contradictions. He sees things that don't make sense. And this helps them return, come back to the Jewish people. And it's the term coming back, meaning because this is actual goodness that started out in Klal Yisrael. It fell into the other side and now it's returning. It's being brought back. Thank you. We'll hold it over here for now. All the best. Thank you. Thank you.